Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi. I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about The Virgin Suicides, the 1999 film written and directed by Sofia Coppola based on The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. We're here in week four of our Autour Autumn Fall season. Uh, Last week, we talked about Killers of the Flower Moon over on Patreon, so that rounded out our Scorsese back-to-back, and now we're diving into Sofia Coppola. So today we're talking about The Virgin Suicides, and next week we'll be talking about Priscilla, her new film coming out. And I'm really excited to have this conversation, and I want to hear a lot about this movie, because this was my first time watching this movie. I want to know... I. So watching this movie, I feel like watching it in 1999 as a younger person must have been a crazy trip. I think I would have absolutely been obsessed with this movie. I really liked it watching it now, but it made me wish I had seen it earlier in life. And I'm sad that I I hadn't. Um, But yeah, so watching this for the first time, I really didn't know what to expect. And I'm still kind of like trying to even parse what like happened to me like it it felt it feels like this movie just kind of like washes over you it's sort of this kind of like melancholic dream state that you enter into and like all of my analytical i'm tracking plot and structure and like dramatic questions just kind of like dissipated into the ether and i was just in this world and uh i haven't seen a ton of sofia coppola films but Lost in Translation also has that kind of effect on me where I've just become lost in this like poem of an experience almost. I want to talk about this because I feel like I need more thoughts in my brain to kind of mm-hmm. calibrate and triangulate things. But there's definitely a lot of stylistic choices that were interesting. At times, it's sort of documentary feeling like very like we are interviewing this person and you can feel that there is a documentarian off to the side but in other times it's not like that at all i you know we also talked about recently dazed and confused which i hadn't really seen that came to mind this feels of the same ilk but kind of more like emotional and interesting ways that resonated with me so yeah i this is just a really interesting film and i'm sad i didn't see it earlier but i'm really glad that i saw it for this um i want to hear from someone who saw it Back in the day, so I'm going to start with Trisha. I think probably is your safe bet with that one. Uh, I, I might have seen it earlier than you guys. I, I probably caught it right after Lost in Translation came out because I wanted to go back and and catch up on it. Um, and I really enjoyed it then. I mean, it's so 
I don't know, it, it lingers with you, right? It just kind of follows you around. And uh, I felt it was, especially at the time, it was a portrayal of like young womanhood that I hadn't really seen before. But I also think the POV of it is incredibly interesting because it's actually, it's like about these young women, but it's not from their POV at all. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of missing information that we do not have. um, And it's because there are these male narrators. (laughs) It's just Giovanni Ribisi. But, uh, you know, there's... (laughs) (laughs) Took me forever to, like, figure out who that was, too. I thought it was Jason Schwartzman, but I thought that didn't quite... Anyway, that was fun. I mean, both are very equal, solid, good guesses for a Sofia Coppola film <laughs> or any Coppola film. But I don't know. There's this POV thing that's happening where it it feels like it's almost not about them. It's almost about us looking at them and the way that they're like seen from the outside. And um, but I still felt that there was this like really salient insight uh, that Sofia Coppola was showing Um And I admit that I have not read the novel and I'd love to hear from people who have, but as a piece of writing in and of itself, I think this film is incredibly gorgeous and I really, really love it. And revisit, I'm like, it's been a while, several years now since I had revisited it and I just loved it again. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it's like a really fun watch, but it is surprisingly funny Mm -hmm. and you know, it's really tight and very compelling for essentially being, yeah, this sort of trance-like drama. Um, I've talked about Picnic and Hanging Rock, which is something I really love. And this is also very Picnic and Hanging Rock adjacent where it's just sort of about a mood and that sort of captures the subjects of it. Like it captures the subjects of its gaze with this sort of like, yeah, mood-like portrait. Um it's lovely. I just really, really like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, so Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, I did see it back in within a couple of years after it came out. Um, and honestly, I have no memory of my experience watching it, which means it wasn't super bad or super good. <laughs> like it was just like, I saw the movie and, and that was it. Um, so it was basically like a first, um, a first watch for me this time. And, yeah, really, really fascinating. Everything you guys were saying about just that sort of that mood that washes over you and then like lingers with you. And and as I was watching the movie, I was spending a lot of time trying to sort of parse the metaphor of it all, um, which uh, which I want to get into a, a ton um, and was maybe struggling a little bit with it. So so I think my experience of watching it, it's almost like watching a whodunit where you're spending too much time in your own head trying to figure things out rather than watching mm. the movie, you know? Um, it's like, a, it's a why done it, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, so, you know, I still enjoyed the experience. But then, you know, Trisha, you said it lingers like I watched it two days ago and it has kind of haunted me since then. Like it's just stuck with me in like this really, really cool way, this like really exciting way where now I, it makes me want to go back and watch it like immediately. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to get into all of that. Um, but I think that there's there's a lot of cool stuff happening sort of within the movie in terms of just like the movie stuff that it's doing. But then there's also this bigger esoteric kind of 
what do movies do to us kind of thing that's going on that I think is is really cool about this movie and Lost in Translation. You know, like there's there there are. I was thinking like if if Scorsese is you know putting Rolling Stones videos in his movies, like Sofia Coppola is putting like Portishead videos in her movie. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. if he's like the like look at this guy, he's gonna walk into a bar in slow motion, and we're gonna like watch him for you know this is just like no, we're just gonna like watch people just exist and then the music <laughs> is going to just like drip emotion you know like that um just like honey montage at the end of just yeah. uh, lost in translation right like there's just something something really cool about the way that this movie and and a lot of her movies just feel in general mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure okay and alex what about you I think I saw it around the same time as Brian, which was, you know, not that long after it came out. And I think I was just too young and, you know, wasn't ready for a movie that didn't have that kind of clear plot conclusion mm-hmm. at the end. It, 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 I didn't get the point of it at the time, which is not not to have conclusiveness about the why done it, who done it of it all. It is this tone poem experience. And I'm so happy to have had an excuse to watch it again for the podcast because I really loved it this time. And I think, yeah, Sofia Coppola, when I think about my favorite movie of hers, The Beguiled, um, both of these movies kind of, I don't know, that they, they just explore this mysterious world of women. Like, cause <laughs> like just like, just like these, these, like, these like, like all women, all women's yeah. spaces and kind of like the, a certain kind of magic and mystery around those spaces. And uh, there's just something really special about the way that she captures that, whatever that is. And, you know, in this, in this instance, it's this, you know, young womanhood coming of age kind of headspace and, you know, confined in the house because of the overbearing mother. And then you've got in the beguiled, this, this kind of also coming of age, bubbling sexuality in a confined space with like a man entering that space. So I, anyway, I just, I, I love the mastery she has over creating those spaces and playing with a really subtle, like kind of, um, you can't put words to the kind of like feelings and emotions of that space, but movies can. And so, yeah, I, I would love to talk more about whatever that is, but I, I loved this movie. And I, and I also agree with you, Trisha. I think it's so brilliant how the perspective is outside looking in at mm-hmm. that space in this movie where we don't understand all the why or you, the the girls kind of remain inscrutable to us uh, through the end. Um, and that's just part of that magic and mystery, which I really loved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, let's get into it. I mean, so yeah, like we said, it's really interesting perspective things. There's this way that this film seems to kind of, I like to word Brian, like haunted mm. all of us. And so like how and why can movies do that? And uh yeah the mystery and and magic of women we'll we'll dive into that and answer that too (laughs) what are they what are they (laughs) so it's grudable (laughs) exactly (laughs) but like yeah the man on the podcast (laughs) (laughs) but i do think yeah there there is something you know as we're talking about auteurs part of what makes an auteur is you know there's if film is a language, I feel like auteurs kind of develop their own dialect in in a way. Ooh, and yeah. I feel like Sofia Coppola, even though I haven't seen that many of her films, 
seems to have her own dialect. Like when someone says there's a new Sophia, like I get a feeling of what that is. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm excited to dive in and kind of tease this apart a little bit. Well, in our last conversation about Killers of the Flower Moon, we spent a little bit of time talking about how the filmmaker draws attention to things. And I think in this case in particular, because it's about a coming of age story, it the way that the filmmaking pays attention to certain details makes you like puts you in the headspace of the way that people like teenagers pay attention to things. Right. And so it's like when you're 16 and you have a crush on this guy, then like the minute details of like how he sits next to you in class or like, um, you know, exactly how he like brushes your hand. Or I'm thinking of the scene where uh, Trip Fontaine, Josh Hartnett's character. On October 3rd. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, correct. Um, but yeah, where he's like sitting next to her in the movie, right? And they're like hands are brushing on the, the, the armrest between them. All of those small details are, we tend not to weight them in adulthood the same way we do in childhood, right? Or like in adolescence. Right. So it's like, it's perfectly reasonable to me that Cecilia would have written in, or sorry, is her name Cecilia, the youngest one? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That the Cecilia would have written in her journal, oh, you know, I noticed this thing about the birds singing or um, Lux did this or my older sister did this. And the way that adolescent minds fixate on things or notice small things and also think to like record them and treasure them, right? When you're a kid or an adolescent, you put little things in your treasure boxes and it's just like a cool rock you picked up, right? But it's just like, I'm going to fixate on this thing because it was important to me. You know, when, when you're in your first relationship, you save all your movie ticket stubs from like the movie that you went to or the song just means so much to you of the song that you were listening to that one time during that one thing when they said that thing. And the filmmaking captures that, right? The way that details seem really vivid and the way that they stay with you. And I think that that's a big part of putting you in the headspace of the adolescent subjects, both the the boys across the street who are the neighborhood boys who are observing them and then the girls themselves, the Lisbon girls themselves. I think it's just brilliant observation at the end of the day. I, I love when the boys are looking through kind of like the stolen scrapbooks and mm-hmm. the the like visual montage that happens. Something is so perfect about that. Like it captures that teenage imagination and them almost like luxuriating in this fantasy of, you know, being with these girls and these magical, you know, trips to Europe or whatever they're imagining. But I, I thought Sofia Coppola, like you're saying, Tricia, through her filmmaking, captures this teenage feeling really, really well. And the fact that, you know, on top of the, the, the fact that sort of the girls are the essentially protagonists of the movie, you know, specifically Lux. Um, and then we have the POV of the boys, but then we also have the trip present day, you know, narration and stuff. My so boy, Michael Pere. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've written like th- three movies for him now. And then I was like, oh, my buddy. <laughs> I love that. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that we are seeing these events through each of their perspectives. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, Trip is presented as this like, oh, he's he's the it boy, like he can do anything, da da da. And then we cut to him being like, I like this girl, I don't know what to do, you know. And it's just, or or like him in the future, you know, being sort of, um, you know, obviously not not proud of his actions and stuff. And I think that like that also helps imbue every moment with weight. The fact that we are seeing multiple characters who like want a thing to happen. So it's not just like, Oh, this guy's going to come over and he's going to kiss me. And she's excited about it. It's like, no, they're both kind of going like, what is going to happen? I want that. Da, da, da. So then when their hands are almost touching, then you're going, you're in both of their heads at the same time going, Oh, they both want this, but maybe the other one's not ready to do that. Da, da, da. The scene where the other boy is up in, in Lex's like room and she comes in to get something and she's been like playing footsie with him. But then she's like, get out of my room, please. You know, and it's just sort of these moments where it's just like, Oh yeah, that all feels very, very real. Those little moments that you remember where you're like, Oh man, maybe that was the moment where like this thing could have happened. Or maybe I should have done that instead of this. You know, we all, we all stew on those until we die. So, um, (laughs) Brian is still stewing. Still stewing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, sort of a non sequitur, Patricia, you're talking about like, you know, that one song that was playing at the one thing. Maybe I've mentioned this on the podcast, but like when I broke up with my first girlfriend, I had a, I burned a CD of Coldplay's The Scientist with just sure. that track and I played it in the car <laughs> while we broke up on a repeat. Wow. wow. Wait, like, wait, you played it. Like as the background music yes, while like you were I telling her you were breaking up. This with- horrific thing that, it, yeah. I'm, Youth. Wow. Anyway, um, but like those. Uh, I, hope a, you, I hope you told her you were sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is the apology right now. Yeah. Definitely lots of apologies. Um, but like these are things that don't like wouldn't have come into my brain had we not been talking about like this movie, had I not seen this movie, had that not transported me back to this time period in that head state. And like you're saying, Trisha, yeah, those like all those little details really like yeah it's so simple but it's something that's because it's so simple we overlook it so easily as adults as you were saying and then also yeah we're talking about kind of perspective and so there's the boys and from the different time jumps but also there's this kind of interesting thing with the neighbors where sometimes we're with the neighbors listening to the gossip about what's happening and then there's you know the reporters doing the story about what's been going on and so again none of that like coalesced into like a really clear thing that i could put my like hands on and and wield but it did create this like sense of yeah i don't know like it's it's about what people think or project and it was just i don't know what do you guys what do you guys make of all that stuff i mean something you're talking about all these different perspectives and I, i think the movie felt very for being such a subjective feeling movie, it also feels very objective and and non-judgmental, not really taking a perspective or point of view, but really just even the way that it's narrated in some ways, it's just almost like it's laying out the facts and just right. presenting everything matter of factly. And even you know, when we jump to adult Trip Fontaine, um, there's this kind of like simple objectivity of looking at him and then this woman comes in and says it's time for your group meeting so he's probably like in rehab or something mm-hmm. but it's the movie is not like making a thing out of it. it's just like matter of fact this is this guy ended up here <laughs> and, and that's that's what it is um and there's something interesting about that 
Yeah, I mean the the narrator is not a major character in the movie in a way that we would expect a, a narrator of the movie. I can't even off the top of my head remember which of like the four boys he is. I don't is. think we know. Do we know? Right. Yeah. We don't know. I mean, like there might be a yeah. moment where it's like, he's like, I, you know, when she told me this or whatever, I don't know, but like he's literally credited as a narrator and it's just, so, um, so I think that's part of exactly what you're saying, Alex. It's like, we're not, we're not, we're, we're just sort of looking at this world from these different perspectives without being like, and then here's what this character, like we're going to spend, we're going to go see what his relationship with his dad's like. And then he's going to go ride his bike to the store. You know, it's not that kind of movie. It's just a movie about like, we are all kind of looking inward at this thing. And then there's also the interesting thing of the, what happened of it all where, you know, 1999, we also had American Beauty, where we are hearing the movie from the POV of, uh, you know, a narrator who does not survive the events of the movie, um, which obviously you could do here, I guess. But there's the the question in my mind going, OK, well, I know what the title of the movie is, but <laughs> that doesn't mean I know exactly what's going to happen and, and and what all how everything's going to shake out. But telling it from someone else's perspective means that I don't really get any clues, you know, and the only clues I get are them saying like, Oh, we tried to piece together what happened and everything. But, um, but I think that's something, there's something compelling about that too. Definitely. Um, and I just really quickly as an aside, I think telling your audience how a movie's going to end up top is a really interesting, like dramatic construction or idea, right? Shakespeare did it really well, but like there are many other people who have essentially done that. And then that becomes kind of the dramatic question, which carries us through the events of the plot, even when they seem unconnected, where it's like, all of this is somehow going to add up to like how, how and why, and you know, some kind of conclusion in terms of plot while we're just sort of being strung along through these episodic things. Um, But Michael, you're pointing out all of the different um, POV characters and angles that we have on the story. And to me, all of that is thematic. So like, I never really sat down and tried to do a thematic read on this movie at any other point that I've watched it. I've just sort of let it wash over me and absorbed it. But this time around, I was like, I'm going to have to explain this on a podcast. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, to be clear, I don't think this is like the cleanest thematic read of all time, but I just feel feel like there's so much of this um, voyeurism almost or like objectification that's happening of Mm. the girls, the Lisbon girls, Uh, you know, from the narrators, from the neighbors, as you're pointing out, from the news people, as you're pointing out, and even from Trip Fontaine, right? Like he basically just is obsessed with Lux Lisbon in the same way that kind of everybody else is. And he like, has more guts than most and wants to like get closer to her than anybody else ever has. But it's not like he sees her more completely than anybody else does. And we definitely like the film is really clear about that, um, where that storyline resolves. Um, but it's, it's not just the objectification of observing, but the objectification of using these girls for your own personal, whatever you want to use them for. Right. So like whether that's to get people to watch your news clip or that's 
to, you know, in the case of Lux and Trip Fontaine, that's like sexual satisfaction um, on his part. It's just a conquest for him, right? Like she's the one girl who won't give him the time of day. And then she's the one girl he wants and then immediately uses and immediately discards. Um, and then for the boys, it's just this fantasy that they have. I think it's really interesting uh, that the opening, mon like the, the title montage of the movie has that shot of Kirsten Dunst, Lux, like in the clouds, looking directly into camera, kind of flirting with the camera. It's again, this fantasy that the neighborhood boys are, are projecting onto her. And I think it's really fascinating that, first of all, objectification is something that women live with every day, all the time. And even very, very, very young women, um, perhaps especially very young women, you are learning in adolescence that the world is going to objectify you. Um, very quickly, uh, that happens to young women and it doesn't matter what the purpose is, right? Like to young women who are being objectified and used, it's kind of all the same, no matter what the intentions are, right? Like Trip Fontaine didn't know what his intentions were. He didn't realize, like, he thought his intentions were honorable. He said that out loud to her dad. Um, and, but when we see him as older, he's like, I really, really liked her. But then it was different, right? It wasn't a fantasy anymore. It was mm -hmm. real. And then I realized, oh, I, I can't be real with this idea of a thing that I made up in my mind. Um, and... The neighborhood boys are no better. It doesn't matter to the Lisbon girls. I mean, first of all, the neighborhood boys are watching them through a telescope. So that's. <laughs> but also, it doesn't matter to the Lisbon girls. They're they're no different than Trip Fontaine or the news reporter or the gossipy neighbors. Right. It's they're being used all the same. They're not actually being known and engaged with as being real people. They're just being reduced to this flattened idea of a thing. And I think all of that really comes together. You know, the film, I think, is actually crystal clear about that's sort of the stuff of fascination. And it puts us in the position as audience members as having to grapple with that as well. Like, are we also obsessed and fascinated with the Lisbon girls? If so, why? Mm -hmm. um, and what does that say about us? By making the POV characters, you know, those these neighborhood boys and these neighbors and all these other people... It's really interesting, even the last, in the last, like, you know, 30 seconds of the movie, we hear a voiceover from their mother, as though she's being interviewed down the line. And she says something like, none of the girls ever lacked for love in my house. And mm -hmm. she's just kind of processing it herself down the line. Um, but there's all of this sense of, yeah, all of the objectification is essentially the same at the end of the day, in terms of the dehumanizing that it does of the subjects. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think the thing that helped me start to parse the the sort of metaphor and theme of it all was, as you just said, looking at it through the different lenses of the of the different characters, right? So so if Trip is going, I was obsessed with this thing, and then once I got it, I didn't care anymore. Then like that's his sort of thing. Like that's sort of the broader. How can we how can we look at our own lives through that, and do we do that ourselves, right? Um, and then through the boys, you know, and it's sort of, it's an interesting gender thing going on here too, because 
I, I like the guy in me is going like, oh yeah, I know what it's like to be those boys obsessed with those girls, right? So it's like rather than just having everything through through the girls POV, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a whole different experience over across the street than what the Lisbon girls are having in their lives, um, and for them, it's like you know that sort of that sort of nostalgia thing that you feel where you're like, Oh man, remember that summer where we did this thing and then, and, but then this thing happened and we never understood it or like we never saw that person again or whatever. Right. So there's that sort of, I guess we talked about earlier, like the way that we remember things and how we obsess over things. And, and if something doesn't make sense, then we're not okay with that. So then that's the, it's whole kind of thematic package almost. And then of course we had the Lisbon girls where I think, you know, this is a movie where, the reason I keep saying metaphor is because like, this isn't just a movie about five girls who end their lives. This movie is about their experiences and what they went through during this time in their life. Right. Um, and it's like, so it's like the metaphorical loss of innocence, I think is the, is sure. the, the major thing that's happening here, you know? So you have, you have these girls and then, um, you have obviously Lux is the central character who on or around the midpoint, uh, you know, obviously she has has her situation with Trip, and then it's just guys on the roof, and then it's you know like that. That's it. There's there's nothing left. Um, and of course, there's the the symbol of the tree, the this thing that was alive growing in their yard that is now dying, and they are trying dearly, desperately to protect it. Right. So you have that whole thematic thing going on. So I'm still I'm still processing it all but i but i love being able to kind of like put put everything in these little packages based on each of the povs and start to kind of sort through what is being said um with each of those i think another interesting piece of that thematic puzzle is the the party scene yeah. that leads into cecilia's uh suicide um and trisha off mike you were mentioning something interesting about that scene which is there's a character with down syndrome and there's this whole moment that actually leads to cecilia like leaving the party and going upstairs um so i'm curious yeah your thoughts on the meaning of that scene and how it plugs in thematically to, to everything else oh i mean i i think you know, you have a character there uh, with a disability and he's welcomed enthusiastically by everybody. That character's name is Joe. And but, you know, ultimately they're just using him also. Right. For entertainment. Right. For their own amusement. Right. For their yeah. own amusement. Right. They're they're not welcoming him sincerely. They don't really know him or care to get to know him. Um, they just, you know, like, oh, sing your song, do a trick, basically, like entertain us. Um, and right. it. You can see that that's kind of the, as you mentioned, the tipping point for Cecilia to go upstairs, and then that leads directly into um, her choice to go out the window. And it's it is just this, I think, really clear um, parallel, right? Where Cecilia feels like she's not being known and used. I think the the line that she says to the doctor is really interesting where he's like, you're too young to even know how bad life gets. And she's like, obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13 year old girl. Um, right. Iconic line. That's so incredible. Good. But yeah, it's it's very much this sense of like they are not known. They don't feel known by anybody but but themselves, which I think is really interesting. We do have some scenes of them uh, as a unit, right? The five sisters. But it's so fascinating as someone with a sister myself, like I find that when women are in groups alone together, we're talking constantly. 
<laughs> and the scenes where we get the, these girls, they're just like almost not even talking to each other, right? Like almost always when we see a scene of them, they're just kind of like languishing in their room or like sort of almost wordlessly communicating. They're just kind of being their own thing at, at a, in a certain way. Um, and that that contributes to this feeling of unknowability about them or like them being unknown. Um, and yeah, I feel like there's just I, uh, several examples. Like I, there are probably lots of other small examples very similar to that um, where the filmmaker is drawing parallels between people who being used by other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, like that whole party scene was really like, like struck me and was really interesting because on one hand it was sort of portraying the awkwardness of like that time. The universal right? so awkwardness. <laughs> right. So accurate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like that was, I like, I have trouble watching movies about people this age because clearly I have, some baggage back there. Um, but so, so like that was really like painful, but honest and raw and, and brought you into it. But yeah, that they're awkward that whole time until the Joe character comes. And then almost like that's when the party comes alive. It's like, Oh, like, like you were saying, Trisha, like it's almost like there's entertainment here for us now. And how like watching that happen understanding like and i don't think anyone in that room is trying to be evil like kind of to your point earlier alex there's this sort of objectivity that i feel like it's treated with but also seeing what you think what i think the cecilia character is saying is like as you're saying trisha use like people using people for their own reasons or whatever it is and yeah it was striking that that's the moment that she gets up because it, it, it does speak to this kind of crazy wisdom that one would have at 13 that does still feel very honest. And I think one of the lines toward the end when the boys are reading through the journals, there's some line about like, you know, the girls saw us like completely and knew everything about us and we knew nothing. We couldn't fathom them at all. Right. Like, I feel like that is also very true of, people of that age and the different genders, at least like from my experience. So yeah, there's just, I don't know that that was the the breaking point for lack of a better word for Cecilia did feel like it spoke like volumes about the, the psychology of, of this person that again, we don't have windows into except these like tiny little moments and often from the outside. Um, So yeah, that scene like really stuck with me. Well, I just think it's very telling that the next time we go into that basement room is at the very end where another Mm. one of the girls has chosen to end their life in that room. Um, Like they could, you know, in theory, they could all have like been together in the bedroom and all taken the sleeping pills or something. Mm. But the fact that they kind of like, choose different places that are meaningful in different ways or like Mm. symbolic in different ways to them, I just think is really interesting. And, and you can see when the boys are sneaking down the stairs, right. It's, it's kind of a, 
a bookend or a callback to that party scene where they all troop down the stairs together and they're like, here we are for this party. They're sneaking down there later, like, oh, we're going to go into the basement. And then, of course, what they find is that another one of the Lisbon girls has chosen to end her life there. Yeah, and it looks like like the remnants of the party are, are still yeah. there, right? So like it it's that very way. quickly yeah. reconnect that. And uh, yeah, so the, that's also like the parent characters are really interesting mm. in all of this too, because it doesn't feel, again, it wasn't like immediately clear, you know, they didn't plug in thematically like a, like a single peg, but it felt like in all these multifaceted ways they were touching like all of this like thematic stuff in, t- in terms of like yeah what are the parents using them for it feels like lots of different things trying to control like you're saying the the mother at the end saying that you know they didn't want for love there's so much love but like how is that being expressed the record burning scene also yeah. like stuck <laughs> with me of like it, it I think with like the setup also of like the parents had just come from like a particularly like heated sermon or something. And so it was like time to burn all the like rock and roll records. And that felt like a very clear vignette of like, you know, the parents, the mother in particular in that scene feeling like having to perform like what a good parent is onto the child Mm. when the child is like begging to like, like, listen to me, like, these are things that are important to me. And mm-hmm. rather than connecting, you're, you're using, you know, your position of power and behaving in a way that you feel is right. So, it, yeah, that was just another, I feel like there are a lot of instances of really interesting disconnection with the parents and the children that seems really important, but also seems to have lots of different shades to it. Yeah, just really quickly, I think it's fascinating that this movie is not about religion, right? Like, Mm. uh, ostensibly, like, we see um, the mother character wearing that, like, cross necklace. And, like, we sort of understand that there is some kind of religious framework around the strictness in the household. But that's, like, so not what this movie is about in any way. It's not about, like, no one's ever, like, God is judging you for this. Or, like, you have to do this because of the Bible, Absolutely, that's not ever mentioned. It's just these are the rules of the house, right? So the parent characters essentially become their own kind of yeah authority, like just sort of uh, another element of control rather than actually being, I don't know. It, it's interesting how it keeps the theme like razor focused on this like objectification and people, you know, using other people by not making it about anything larger than that. It stays focused on like the humanness of the way that these characters are harming each other. And, and there's a dimensionality to all the characters, like, like including the parents where you could this movie could just be the parents being oppressive and awful the entire time but they're kind of not for the first like maybe third ish half ish where they're just like they're kind of normal like the dad's like yucking it up with the you know guys about his you know thing that he made or whatever like um and, yeah the, war, and, uh, the wars his all of his war trivia that he wants to share right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, and then and there it's like, oh, we have these rules, da, da, da. But then it's almost not until the 
girls start to become a little more rebellious that then the parents clamp down. And that's not to say the parents are like fine, actually, as much as it's to say this movie is not interested in, in putting everyone into a one dimensional box just to sort of mm-hmm. show you what their archetype is, including trip. Like we talked about, you know, he feels like a sort of complicated character and not just what you expect the character to be. As soon as you see that opening, you know, needle <laughs> drop moment with him, right. You're like, Oh, it's this guy. And it's like, Oh no, he's a little more complicated than that. And, and I think that that's part of the sort of mystery of it all is, is people aren't just whoever you think they are. They are many things. Yeah. And I love the counter programming casting of Kathleen Turner in the role of the mom. Like, mm-hmm. so one of the sexiest women ever, like ever who, you know, her career is sort of made on erotic thrillers and like very sexy movies, basically. Um, and she's got the full figure and she's got the like, you know, she, the deep voice. And it's just really interesting that they cast her in this because I think there's this sense of I read a, a review where it kind of talked about her as being like afraid of her own sexuality Um and mm-hmm. by by casting somebody like Kathleen Turner with the reputation and career that she has had, it's really amazing to see the way that she becomes this like uptight person in the role. And I think it works tremendously well, right? Like she's not dowdy as a human being, but the way that they make her look scared of her own like self or her own desires and scared for her daughters too. The scene where she's like interviewing all the boys before they take them out uh, for homecoming. I don't know. She's just amazing where she's like, who's driving and and what are you doing? And um, Mm. there's like a hesitation or just like a fear that's the undercurrent of all of her, you know, crackdowns and, and like authority uh, figures. She's even the scene where she's burning the records. You feel like she might not go through with it. Right. She's kind of like afraid of the whole thing or doesn't want to be doing any of it. But she just in a way, in her own way, also feels like stuck. That's like just one of the things I really, really like about that scene is that she like sort of fails where like yeah. oh, there's all the smoke and she has to open yeah. the door and she, you know we'll, we'll burn them later i'll throw them away <laughs> like, right. in theory i want to burn these to make a statement but it's not practical no. right, right. <laughs> yeah and i just love that that kind of yeah that three-dimensionality that then comes across from her kind of like you were saying right right yeah like because i as you were talking trish i was picturing like uh amy poehler in mean girls right where it's like oh the mom like the daughter became like a carbon copy of the mom the mom is like this is how you know the women in this family are and like we have to do life live like this way and i'm going to mold you into this thing and like these five girls are all sort of very similar in in look and and that kind of thing and then the mom as you're pointing out is is very different right so it so it makes this interesting counterpoint with with the girls rather than they're all just like micro versions of their mom and and all this yeah this really does fit perfectly in with theme because in in a lot of ways a protective parent like this is objectifying and flattening their children you know their children are denied three-dimensionality they are just young women and in her mind young women have to be protected at all costs from everything including music including boys including whatever and that's that's a flattening of her children into this like this object of young woman that has all these kind of like rules attached to it and i think it's interesting you know the number of characters in scripts 
like, and in movies, we try to keep them down, right? Because you want each character to have, like, their own personality and whatever. But the fact that there are five Lisbon girls at the beginning, it's too many. And, like, I can't, I genuinely have seen this movie many times and kind of can't keep track of, you know, the some of those older ones. Cecilia and Lux are the two youngest. And then mm-hmm. the three mm-hmm. oldest are all just kind of this, like, one person in my mind. And the fact that they're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, it's like yeah. they're not even there's not even enough age difference for you to be like, oh, right. that's the. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly the point that you're making, Alex, which is just that, like, in our in our mind and in the mind of the narrators, they're just the Lisbon girls and they're all sort of this like faceless thing. And yeah, they don't get to have like uniqueness. They don't get to have their own dreams, their own like hopes and goals and the things that we normally associate with dimensionality in film um, and in real life as we get to know people. Yeah. Well, and so so maybe we can like pivot to lessons here and, and also kind of the lesson that I've been thinking about is ever since you mentioned the details thing, Trisha, I've been like, yeah, like details are really important. And there's lots of different kinds of details right you can be a fincher that's like this camera needs to be like two pixels to the right because we need that detail or there's the detail as you were describing of like what is the subjective experience of this character and what things can i focus on to recreate that subjective experience and yeah i've been kind of thinking about that and i feel like Sofia Coppola, at least in the, the two entries of hers that I know the best, which is this, because I just saw it, and then uh, Lost in Translation. There is a focus, I think, more on conveying the subjective experience of what's going on than there is like the plot or like, I'm going to tell you a story in a more, you know, A to B to C to D conception of what a story is and yeah i guess i'm just curious to hear you guys thoughts about that because i feel like it's starting to put kind of a mental model around this ineffable sophia coppola-ness that's been in my brain that i'm now kind of i don't know it's a way for me to like be able to handle it more and appreciate it more specifically of like this film is about these things in this experience it's not about you know the normal three-act structure plot etc things you can use the language of film to do lots of things and create a lot of different emotional experiences for your audience and i feel like there is something in this in loss and translation that is like wholly unique and using film in a really unique way that's i don't know that's really special Yeah. I mean, to be clear, this film has a structure, right? Brian hinted at it earlier. The Trip Fontaine character kind of creates the structure of the second act. Um, And like, so, you know, just when you think whenever there's like this, we feel lost, there's not a dramatic question, something else comes in, right? Like the elm tree is like a plot thread as a, as like sort of a B plot. Um, The, Trip Fontaine character comes in as kind of like this B plot Um, for, you know, for the first whole first act, the Cecilia thing is just this huge dramatic question hanging over it because it's like, it starts with Cecilia was the first to go. 
But then she doesn't go. She's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just becomes like, what is going to happen? Um, so there is structure to this. I didn't like pause it this time around. But yeah, I bet you'd find that the Trip Fontaine um, encounter like at homecoming happens Right at the midpoint, I would say. Or actually, do you think it's the crisis? <laughs> now, I, now I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's very, like I almost paused, but I kind of didn't want to. Like, because I felt like it didn't matter in this movie. Yeah. In a, in a I way think it's that... the midpoint because after that, after that, Lux starts like messing around with boys on the roof. Right. And then there's still a while before it goes into like total, total lockdown. And then they start like listening to records and, and things with the girls on the phone. Um, if I had to guess. Yeah, I think it's probably a late midpoint. It's a late midpoint. Because I do feel like like after that, after he leaves her in that horrific way on the field, uh, yeah, then sets everything going toward the back half. But I think it is shorter. And yeah, so there's absolutely structure. And like you mentioned at the beginning, there's the dramatic question framing everything, which is we know these characters are going to die at some point, how, when, et cetera, keeps us engaged, keeps us caring about the events of the plot as well. Cool. Okay. Other lessons we're taking away from Virgin Suicides. Brian. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a little with what you were talking about, I was thinking about this sort of slice of life movie um, and w- how this is one and how it isn't one and, and that kind of thing. Um, I remember my friend who I watched a lot of movies with when we were kind of in our teens and twenties, he referred to the slice of life movies usually as something he tended not to like. And that maybe got into my DNA a little bit um, where I was having a hard time getting into them. Um, and just to kind of define what I'm talking about, it's these, you know, the virtual suicides, days to confused are, are a couple examples of just like movies where there's not often like a traditional plot or strong dramatic, but like in that way where we're just like this thing happened to this person and then they went on this crazy journey and there was a car chase and whatever, right? Like the sort of what we think of is just like, that's what a movie is. And, you know, it's erroneous for us to think of as that's what a movie is, but that's sort of how we have been raised a lot of the time. Um, And then obviously there's this sort of gritty lo-fi documentary kind of feel like we talked about. And you're just kind of watching people exist for a while. And I I was thinking like when it either it's not done well or maybe it is done well, it's just not working for me is when at the end I'm kind of going, what was that for? Like, why did I do that? Right. I wasn't necessarily super entertained and now it's over and I don't know what to take away from that. And again, some of that is when it's not done well, but some of it is, I think, us becoming better as an audience at subtlety and theme and character arcs that maybe aren't screaming in your face, right? Like there is that kind of stuff. I think I was thinking about um, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always as a movie I probably would not have appreciated at all when I was in my early 20s and like loved like crazy when I saw it kind of being able to really sink my teeth into what is what is really going on in that movie. Um, so then back to version suicides, I was thinking, you know, how does this movie not get bogged down in the slice of lifey kind of feel of it all? Because we do spend that sort of second act that you're identifying. It is just a lot of like, here's some people and like, they like each other and they're doing some stuff. But of course we have this provocative opening and title and you know that we are shown the dynamite under the table at the beginning so we're spending i'm spending this movie leaning in 
going, oh, I'm not just watching two people flirt. I'm going, is this part of what what's going to happen? You know, mm-hmm. is this like what, like uh, tracking everything, you know? And as I mentioned earlier, we have this like the voiceovers by the narrator, the sort of undercurrent of like, we're still trying to piece it together and we never really quite understood. So I'm like, ooh, what's going on here? Um, so that's obviously like a huge macro thing that this movie is doing to just be like, everything that you're seeing is imbued with meaning. Even if maybe you could take this scene out or that scene out, you as the audience member are are looking for meaning in every little interaction, right? And I think that's really cool. Um, and then there's just smaller things throughout that I think just gives this movie like a, a, a kind of life that I'm missing a lot of times from these more slice of lifey movies where I just feel like I'm just like just watching a camera on a wall. <laughs> like, why, why are we doing this? Um, where, you know, there is the sort of will they, won't they? There's the girls kind of getting into trouble, the rebellion. So there's this kind of boiling under. The movie's kind of weirdly funny in a lot of ways. It it's is. like darkly comedic in a way that's that's enjoyable. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm allowed to, to laugh at that? Okay, like that, because I... I didn't know if I could, but you told me I, I could. So like that makes that kind of gives me like a, a release a little bit. So this movie doesn't just feel dour the entire time. Um, and then, of course, as we identified right at the, the top, just these dream montages and this mood hanging over everything, you know, that I just feel like if if Sofia Coppola had just leaned into I'm going to purely go for the um uh, cinema verite thing, then we wouldn't feel, we wouldn't feel this movie in the way that like, she just makes us feel this movie. And I think there's a lot going on there where it's sort of this slice of life movie embedded in this poem of a, of a package, you know, that, that just sort of, I think works really well. Yeah. Just like some of the color, like in the, the, in the house, the longer the girls are kind of confined there, the more just like starkly green and blue and, it's really yeah it's not that slice of life kind of like i've complained about sometimes where it's you know it's like the sundance darling picture where it's like everything kind of looks very plain and very boring and it's like so slice of life this is like dripping with like color and style even as it has this kind of very realistic um slice of life feeling to it yeah i love the the mini montage where people are being haunted by cecilia like where mm. two different yes. of the boys are like they see her and then her dad also sees her right um it's a like a crazy choice just to have that as like sort of a part of the the texture of the movie but it goes a long way towards that like yeah dreamlike really vivid evocative feeling yeah yeah very much so yeah yeah there's yeah I feel like there's like a thing on the tip of my tongue that I still haven't been able to like get to. So I'll think about it some more as we listen to Trisha's lesson. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah. Speaking of all of this, um, the scene that I was struck by this time was the second to last one kind of um, where they're talking about how the neighborhood like Uh, There's the spill at the chemical plant and then like everything is toxic and the elm trees are all dying. Right. We see the like the condemned Mm -hmm. trees all along the sides of the street. And then they're talking about debutante balls and how the air hole, the like whole atmosphere smells bad and then all this stuff. And it's interesting. You mentioned the color, Alex, where it be kind of comes this uh, again 
the the narrators, this is after the Lisbon girls have all died. Um, so the narrators are looking back on this time in their, this place, and they are the ones who are associating this atmosphere of death and the other things that were changing in their lives with the death of the Lisbon girls, right? There's this extrapolation of, we had this feeling that something had died, and then literally that seemed to manifest around us, or we we saw that manifesting around us in these unrelated events, um, but to them, are they're these deeply related events, right, where these other things have happened. And so now they're, they're wrapped up together in the minds of the narrators with the death of the Lisbon girls. Um, and, you know, that party's really interesting. Everyone's wearing their gas masks. The color's, like, so green and everything. Um and again, it just goes back to that, like our impressions of the way that things are. It's so novel. Like I assume it must be straight out of the novel. Right. But our, our impressions of the way that things are, the ways that we connect events. Um, and I just think this movie does that all over the place. Like that's probably the biggest example. But there are so many examples of the way that the movie makes connections between these events and you know, again, the, the narrators are looking for clues. Um, I will say one thing. So I guess, sorry, just want to set that lesson over there, which is like, if you're wanting to create this sort of like impressionistic, uh, sort of like, yeah, painting or poetry, like thing for your film, making sure that the atmospheric events or the things that we tend to associate with like, yeah, metaphor are, are wrapped up in there. Um, but setting that lesson aside, I also do love the choice um, to keep us in the POV of those narrators because, again, as audience members, that's where we need to find ourselves. This reminds me of our conversation about uh, Killers of the Flower Moon and where the filmmaker wants us as audience members to identify. They don't want us to identify with the Lisbon girls. They want to make sure that we know that we are these neighborhood boys um, and that, like, yeah these neighborhood boys see themselves as being like good guys, right? They're, you know, their fantasies about the Lisbon girls are not explicitly sexual, but they are certainly fantasies. Um, and you know, the, the, the scene right before they go to like pick up Lux and the girls, what they think they're like, Oh, we're going to escape to Europe. Here's all these photographs in our minds of like us having a good time. We're all free. We're all like enjoying ourselves. Um, again, those are for being created for their own like pleasure for their own, um, enjoyment, this I, inner life that they've cultivated about their relationship, their non-existent relationship with the Lisbon girls, to be honest. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's really telling that these are the people that the Lisbon girls choose to witness their deaths. Right. They, they bring them there specifically to witness their deaths. Um, mm. Like Lux goes and chooses to enter life literally after talking to them. Um, and some of the other, the timing of the other girls happens while they are in the house. So the message there from the Lisbon girls is also very, and from the filmmaker is also very clear, right? That just because you see yourself as being like the good guys does not mean you are the good guys in this scenario. Um your objectification is no different than anybody else's that is being placed on their lives. And I think that that's also incredibly fascinating. And again, um, I just, ah, oh, she's so good. Sophia Coppola. Even thinking about that, um, 
that kind of epilogue debutante ball oh, party yeah. scene. There's this extended moment of the kind of like rich dad doing a toast to the daughter who's like the uh-huh. object of the room exactly. of like she's going to this very nice school and like look at her. Um, so the, the, this, this interesting theme carries on even into that last part of just the young women as these objects for the, the debutante ball is literally toxic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Literally gas we, masks. We get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Alex, what about you? Just think about narration. And you know, this movie came out in 1999. Then it has kind of a feeling of, of course, we already mentioned American Beauty. And uh, also think about some Wes Anderson movies. Just this feeling where, you know, we, we're also taught in the like screenwriting 101 books that, you know, narration's a crutch. You know, narration is lazy. You got to show, don't tell. But I think filmmakers like Sofia Coppola and and movies like this narration is doing something different than like crutch support because you can't tell your story otherwise. Um, There's something that's that's poignant about pairing uh, like a like a perspective looking back in time, like kind of talking from a perspective that that is that doesn't understand the interiors and just looking at something and talking about it from from the from a distance that's it's not doing plot work even really at that point it's doing something else and i think thinking about the different things narration can do besides fill a gap in your plot because you couldn't figure out how to show don't tell um and i think this is an example of a movie where narration is doing something different than plot gap filling and and like Wes anderson movies i think when the narration feels really poignant there is this synergy uh between a statement being made by the usually kind of omniscient narrator in an image on screen. And there's there's a pairing of those images that is not about plot anymore. It's about the pairing and the emotion of the pairing. And so I think, yeah, I love I love narration in movies when it's not doing plot work, but doing emotional work. Mm. And this mm-hmm. is a great example of that. Yeah. And I think anytime the narration is told from decades later, Um, you know, whether it's this or stand by me or Christmas story or wonder years, like the wonder years, it's Mm, just like, yeah, it's like it almost automatically is imbued with emotion because it's a character remembering another time in their life. And uh, often that gets, that gets built into the, into the narration where they are being like, oh man, I, I, I like the way that I felt that day, I've never felt like that again or something like that. That means a lot more coming from someone who is 40 saying that than someone who write it, I'm 11 and like, this is the most important thing to me right now. It's like to say that still was the most important thing to me. Like that has a whole different weight to mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. Time, time, powerful. <laughs> As we've talked about in the last episode. Time. Time. <laughs> Duration. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, yeah, I want to hear what you guys have been watching. But also I'm really excited that, as I said, to remind everybody, next week we'll be back with Priscilla. This is, the, I think, the one time in our tour autumn season that we're looking at a director's literally first feature film and their Mm -hmm. latest back to back. Mm. So I think that'll be really fun to compare and contrast. And we're all going together. I'm excited. But in the meantime, what else have you guys been watching? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, So for quite a while, my partner and I have been talking about doing this double feature and we just, for some reason, hadn't gotten around to it. And we finally did 
the babysitting double feature, which is Adventures in Babysitting. And Don't, and don't Tell Mom, Mom the, babysitter's the Babysitter's Dead. I knew it. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Not The Babysitter. Um, uh, yeah. And, you know, I loved both these movies when I was a kid and just hadn't seen them in quite a while. And, you know, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. It, it's fine. It's fun. It's like definitely that early 90s type thing with just insane plot stuff where you're like, I guess, sure. Like the movie can just tell me that happened and it's fine. The, the, both these movies are pretty insane, but Don't Tell Mom especially is a little bit more. But man, Adventures in Babysitting is, it makes me so happy. Um, I, I watched this a ton as a kid. It's just so much fun. It's Chris Columbus's first movie. Nice. And yeah, and like he just already had this flair for just like antics, like fun, <laughs> energetic <laughs> antics. Uh, something that's amazing is so amazing, you know, like just the big, like whether it's Goonies or Harry Potter, just like a step into a room and it's like the m most incredible room anyone's ever seen. And he like makes you feel that. And it's got Elizabeth Shue and Anthony Rapp and Bradley Whitford and Vincent D'Onofrio plays maybe Thor in it, question mark. It's the, <laughs> the movie makes it unclear. Um, and then Keith Coogan is in both movies uh, and he's really clean cut in Adventures in Babysitting. And then he's a total like long haired stoner metal kid in Don't Tell Mom. And at the end of the movie, he gets a haircut and he cleans up and like, 11 year old me in the theater was like oh it's brad from adventures and babysitting and i feel like that was like the first time in my life i can remember like recognizing like an actor <laughs> like oh you are, were in a different thing that i saw but now i can tell because you look the same that you were that other person so one of the other many reasons <laughs> that that movie has a, a fondness in my heart so yeah adventures and babysitting classic holds up it's on Disney Plus, uh, but if you want to watch it in all its original late 80s PG-13, couldn't say some of the stuff today, glory, then I'd, I'd recommend watching it somewhere else because there's, you know, PG-13 movies in the 80s. What, what are you going to do? Well, they didn't exist in the 80s, not until like the very, very end. I mean, this movie is currently rated PG-13. Maybe it wasn't at the time, but... It, mm. it would have been PG at the time, yeah. yeah. They, they, yeah, yeah. Retroactively. Well, let's just say, if you're watching a Disney Plus, you're you're not watching the original movie. Gotcha. Yeah. It, the actor thing is funny, because I remember um, seeing a trailer for Event Horizon and seeing Sam Neill as not Alan Grant <laughs> as a kid, and, I, and like my brain broke. Oh, like, yeah. This is me possible. with Hunt for Red October. I was like, whoa. <laughs> this is also Sam Neill. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> He's only Alan Grant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> In some ways, it, yeah, it's kind of weird that we let or want actors to play multiple ro roles right? in different movies like <laughs> yeah. sometimes I just think about just like the form of like film also just like that there's music playing in film like I'm watching a thing <laughs> and somebody's <laughs> just like an orchestra is just playing music while stuff is happening that's weird um, cool okay babysitter duo Trisha what have you been watching <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Wes Anderson, which Alex was a minute ago, I saw the new Wes Anderson short films that have just been released on Netflix that are mm. all adaptations of Roald Dahl short stories. Um, the longest one is called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Ben Kingsley and uh, Ray Fiennes, Richard Ayoade and Dev Patel, and... All, all men that I love. And uh, it's just like, it's great. Like that one is 
I would say probably the most like triumphant, watchable, really fun. It's like 40 minutes long. It zips past. It's great. Like, is it Wes Anderson's masterpiece? I don't know. Maybe. There's something about Wes Anderson Roll Doll that is just like a mind meld, I think, mm, where they just uh-huh. belong together. Like, I love Fantastic mm. Mr. Fox. Um, Same. But the the Wes Anderson shorts are just really great. So Henry Sugar's amazing. If you can only watch one, watch that one. But then the other three, he did an adaptation of Poison and one of The Swan and then one of The Rat Catcher. Um, and it's clear that, like, he made all these movies at the same time. They have basically the same cast, like, overlapping casts in all of them. Um, but they're so great. Like, there's clearly budget things happening where... There's just a ton of stuff he can't afford to do, but he has the greatest like actors imaginable in the text of a Roald Dahl short story. Um, a lot of people aren't as familiar with Roald Dahl's short fiction, and not all of it is for kids. I would say actually most of it is not for kids, um, although I used to teach it in some of my upper level English classes. Um, but they're always sort of these like fraught narratives with like twisty sometimes magical things but just really unexpected i think at the end of the day you're going to get something that's not what you expect from roald dahl and wes anderson brings all the whimsy to it but also all of the um like just this fun story experience of like you're just going to hear a story right now usually because ray finds is going to play roald dahl and look right into camera and tell it to you or because <laughs> benedict cumberbatch is going to do that or duff patel is going to do that or or whatever anyway they're all a delight strong recommend from me uh the wonderful henry wonderful story of henry sugar at all of the new wes anderson shorts thanks I feel like those came out of nowhere also, but maybe yeah. I don't follow these things, but I was like, wait, what? There's a new, what? So that's, yeah, it's good to hear a, a glowing review of it. Yes. Alex, what have you been watching? Um, I went and saw the film Anatomy of a Fall, mm. uh, which won the Palme d'Or at, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, it's a, I think it's a French film, but it's, it's half in French, half English, because the lead character in the film is a German woman living in France. Um, who has to speak English to kind of like get by with everybody. Um, but it's a really interesting courtroom drama, basically. It's 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 about uh, a man falls from the upper level of a house and dies. And then the question is, did his wife kill him or not? And we are, we are not told, the audience, you know, what actually happened. And the whole movie is watching the lead actress, essentially, um, uh, Sandra uh, Huller is her name. Uh, she's really great just to watch and just to think about you know, who is she and do we believe her? And we, the more the movie goes on, the more we understand about her marriage and her life and how she ended up here. And it's just, yeah, it's a really interesting movie that I would highly recommend. Anatomy of a Fall. Nice. Nice. Okay, cool. Michael. So I actually don't have a movie. I'm going to do a podcast this week. Ah, classic. Uh. It's it's been a minute, okay? I, guess I know. That's Is it a Malcolm classic. Gladwell podcast? <laughs> so no, that'll be next week. So this week, <laughs> uh, so there was a an episode of the Ezra Klein show podcast from New York Times Opinion. Um, he had a guest on interviewing a guest, and so it's called uh, "We Need Better Narratives About Gender." And I think the subtitle is Ooh. a very queer conversation about gender, and. So, you know, 
conversations about gender, trans rights, all these things are happening. And my struggle has been uh, coming from a place of ignorance and not a lot of touch points within my life and my circle, like wanting to understand and like get a better like mental model of how to navigate all of this and be supportive and all, all these things. But my only venues being Twitter and people yelling as loud as possible on either side about whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just having an allergy to that kind of conversation, if you can even call it that. And so listening to this episode was just like an epiphany, like breath of fresh air where it's just like, two really smart people talking in a quiet room at that, you know, at conversational levels about the complexity of all of it and just tackling it in a way that was extremely accessible for someone like me and provided the like entryway into all of this conversation, all these different changing ways that we're thinking about gender, uh, how that affects trans people, how that affects cis people. Like, how do I think about gender? What is gender? What gives me my gender? There's some interesting allegories about one of the people in the conversation is like biracial and came, you know, grew up in a different country, came to America and then was treated differently and kind of discovered that she was like a black person. And like that has a meaning and that's, was assigned to her. And so there's this thing about her that we perceive as an, you know, immutable part of your identity that she wasn't even aware of. And so how, anyway, there's just a lot of really interesting uh, extrapolations about lots of things about identity, gender, all of it talked about in a really smart, accessible, nuanced way that I super duper appreciated. And so want to get the word out about because it was just really great. So uh, we need ne- uh, we need better narratives about gender. The Ezra Klein show episode. So I'm sorry for ragging you about podcast. That sounds awesome. See, <laughs> <laughs> you can rag me next yeah. next week when oh, I we, talk we about Malcolm Gladwell again. Yeah, <clears throat> but yeah. The Ezra Klein show and also there's a Vox podcast called The Gray Area. Mm. Both highly recommended. That just like yeah, conversations that are. Uh, complex and nuanced and good. You know, it's just like, it's such a breath. Yeah. After being in like a Twitter sphere for too much of a day, just like listening to a long form conversation between two smart people being empathetic and trying to untangle things. is just really refreshing. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Highly recommend. Lovely. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, this has been a conversation about the Virgin suicides. We'll be back next week with Priscilla and round out our Sophia Coppola a tour analysis. We're sort of in the middle of it. We did some Scorsese. We got a taste of Fincher. That'll be bookended. And then Prometheus is on the horizon. I'm excited about that. <laughs> Ridley Scott of, of all of it. Um, yeah. So come back next week. Uh, I want to say thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you for supporting us. If you want to support us and help us make more episodes, head to the beyond the screenplay Patreon. That's also where you can find our patron exclusive episode on killers of the flower moon. Uh, I want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cairos. 
All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we'll see you in the next episode for Priscilla. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.